Hey, it's Chris Freeland, and you're listening to the Doxology Bible Church Podcast. If you want to know more about who we are or learn to connect with us, please visit doxology.church. Most of all, we hope the following message will help you take the next step in your faith journey, whatever it is. In Scripture, it says that Stephen looked up to heaven and he saw God, and he saw Jesus standing next to his father, looking at him, which was confirmation that in this moment when Stephen is dying, he saw Jesus. And that was exactly what I needed to hear so that I could know that when whatever was happening to Molly, that she knew that he was with her. And that in an instant, from the moment she was alive to the moment she died, she was in the arms of Jesus. And and that's what I carried with me to help quiet the fears that would come up in my mind. She wasn't alone. He was with her in that moment, and she has been with him ever since that moment. Doxology Bible Church is proud to present EverStory, launching wherever you listen to podcasts on June 6th. EverStory is a weekly, seasonal podcast featuring Christ-centered stories of hope and transformation, told by people just like you. No chit-chat, just raw, powerful stories. Stories inspire us to connect with each other in real, tangible ways. With stories, we're able to glorify a God who relentlessly pursues us. Mark 16:15 tells us to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. Stories embody who we are as Christians. Without them, Paul's letters would have never been shared. Without stories, a person with Christ in their heart might never find the courage to bring the word to their neighbor. Without stories, the Great Commission never occurs. Check in with us often as we introduce stories about the way Jesus' radical love is moving in truly awesome ways. Find EverStory wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, follow Doxology Bible Church on Facebook or Instagram at Doxology Bible. Want to share your story or know someone who might? Send us an email to stories at doxology.church. Because everyone has a story. Hey, it's Chris Freeland, and you're listening to the Doxology Bible Church Podcast. If you want to know more about who we are or learn to connect with us, please visit doxology.church. Most of all, we hope the following message will help you take the next step in your faith journey, whatever it is. It's Chris Freeland, and you're listening to the Doxology Bible Church Podcast. If you want to know more about who we are or learn to connect with us, please visit doxology.church. Most of all, we hope the following message will help you take the next step in your faith journey, whatever it is. Well, good morning, Doxology. Thanks for joining us online again this morning. As always, I miss seeing your face, but it's so good to worship with you even from there. Hey, grab a Bible if you got one handy and meet me in Acts chapter 6 this morning. Acts chapter 6, if you're just hopping in with us today, we've been looking through the book of Acts at God's plan for taking life with a capital L to the ends of the earth. We've talked about how the resurrection of Jesus has centrifugal force, the kind of force that pushes out from a center. And we've said, whenever you look throughout history and find the church at its healthiest, that's what you always see. 
You see a group of people who put resurrection at the center of their whole existence and let it launch them toward life in all of the places they're sent, from their neighborhoods to the nations. When you watch it in Acts, it's almost like watching a single raindrop land on a pond in slow motion, right? The movement starts on a mountain with a handful of men and women who experience resurrection and it launches them back to where they live with life with a capital L. And the circle gets bigger and bigger and bigger and there are more and more ripples. Life goes further and further to the point we said last week, somewhere in the neighborhood of 25% of the whole city of Jerusalem at this point is finding their life in Jesus. And it only took about a year. It's staggering. It's almost so staggering, it doesn't seem real. Like Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are walking to the temple one day and they get distracted. They tell a guy about resurrection and say, you ought to find your life in Jesus. And the guy thinks, I think I will. And he walks away with life, which is a story in and of itself. But we say, man, stuff like that doesn't happen to me. Like I can't picture a conversation that I would actually have ever going like that. Which in some ways is an assumption that we're challenging in ourselves during this whole series. Maybe the fact that a conversation like that feels so foreign to us is an indication we've let something else get in the center of our life. We talked about that last week. But on the other side of it, Luke's pretty quick to make sure we know it isn't always that simple. You know, it's one thing to live in the centrifugal force of resurrection when everyone around you is believing. And the world is changing for the better and everyone has all their needs met. What does it look like on the other days? Especially the hard days, the worst days. How do you live toward life when the people you're loving refuse to listen? What does centrifugal force look like when you're outnumbered and opposed, when you feel vulnerable and exposed? How do you live toward life on the worst day of your life with the kind of significance that would cause Jesus himself to rise to his feet? Well, Luke has someone he wants you to meet this morning. It's a guy named Stephen. We met Stephen briefly last week. He was one of those guys that had been chosen to make sure the widows near him had all their needs met. And here's what I love about Stephen. He's not a professional Christian. He doesn't work at the church. He wasn't one of the apostles. He doesn't have a title, doesn't have an office, doesn't have a Bible degree. He was a Greek-speaking Jew, so part of the minority culture within Judaism in Jerusalem and undoubtedly within the church. The church has only been around for about a year. We don't have any indication that Stephen was a part of the original group of followers. The chances are he's a guy who found life in one of the ripples that went towards the nation from the original neighborhood. And yet, here's what we're going to see about Stephen. Stephen, as just an ordinary dude who has likely been following Jesus for less than a year, lives towards life with a capital L in such a way that when the powers that be decide to try to stomp out the movement before they kill Peter or James or John, they go after this volunteer leader of a wing of the first impressions ministry of the very first church. I love that. That's who Stephen is. The biggest threat to the establishment in the very beginning was an everyday guy who decided to live his life in the centrifugal force of resurrection. And he sets the pace for how to live on the worst day of your life. And because he does, the launching of life accelerates from one city to an Acts 8, the surrounding area, and to the ends of the earth. How does it look to live towards life on your very worst day? 
Well, Stephen shows us three places to focus our attention as he stares down the worst day of his life, which turns out to be the last day of his life and also the best day of his life as well. Look down at Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Luke writes, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. So we talked about Stephen's ordinariness. He wasn't one of the apostles or a pastor or a person that grew up in church, but that's not to say he wasn't gifted. Stephen's a guy who was full of, quote, God's grace and power. Okay, that's Luke's way of saying the message of resurrection and the present power of God was present in Stephen's life. God was working in his life in undeniable, unexplainable, really extraordinary ways that, by the way, don't make the news up to this point. And yet, when we meet him, he's serving. They've asked him in the first couple of verses of Acts 6, Stephen, will you help us coordinate the widow's ministry in your little neighborhood? And Stephen doesn't say, Mm, really going to need something a little more upfront. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but it's been said of me, he's like a filled with the Spirit's power. Like, I can do some stuff. Serving meals to people with needs doesn't really fit my particular area of passion and giftedness, you know. We've talked about this posture over and over so far because it's been present in every passage up to this point. Stephen just lives with a posture that walks into a room and says, what do they need? What do I have? How can I help? And I think it's important to recognize how powerful that posture is. See, the willingness to say yes to meeting what looks at first like a relatively obscure and insignificant need is the thing that puts Stephen in a position of most significance, arguably, in the whole book. See, up to this point, the primary storyline revolves around a few people in one location. But after this, life's going to the world. And the transitional character just so happens to be an ordinary guy who's only been following Jesus a few months, who isn't held back by who he's not, and who refuses to be impressed by who he is. His life is not about his life. It's about experiencing and extending resurrection life wherever he's launched. Listen, even a place that looks insignificant can turn out to be a platform for extraordinary significance. The life of a person who's willing to look around. Look around. That's the first place that you see Stephen's focus on the worst day of his life. Looking around for where he can extend life that's really life in real tangible ways. People that need him, near him, every day. And it's worth mentioning, his selflessness, here it cuts a couple of ways. His selflessness leads him both to tenderness and to toughness. He's willing to make sure that the vulnerable people near him have their needs met, whatever that means. And he's willing to speak truth to power when it's required. And that's where this story's going. But not just so that he can score points or be seen or even so he can take their power away from them for himself. He's going to call them stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart leaders. Like that's pretty strong language. And then he's going to pray that God would forgive them. Toughness and tenderness. That's the common denominator for Stephen. Wherever he goes, he lives a life that isn't about him. In big ways and in small ways, on all days, He's walking around looking for how to bring life to whoever is near him that needs him. And yet even still, it doesn't go well. The first two words of verse 9, you see them there. It says, opposition arose. It escalates in a hurry. They argue with him in verse 9. 
They fabricate a story about him in verse 11. They spread gossip about him in verse 12. And then they grab him and drag him into court and falsely accuse him. He's surrounded. He's exposed. He's vulnerable. He doesn't get a vote. His voice doesn't really matter. He's outnumbered and ignored. The world is getting darker and more dangerous all around him in real time. Some of you can relate. How do you face that? Look at verse 15. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin, this area they were gathered around, looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. He faced the world with a face of an angel. Okay, now don't think angel like the chubby baby angel figurines that your grandma has at her house. Okay, the the idea is not Stephen standing there being falsely accused with a soft, gentle, tender, cute smile with his hands under his chin, looking chubby. In the Bible, whenever angels show up on the scene, the first thing the angel always has to do is convince a person not to die because they're so scared. Two things you always notice about angels when they show up in the Bible. They reflect the glory of God from living in the presence of God. And they've got an intensity that comes from their participation in the mission of God. In fact, that's what angel means. It means messenger. So I don't know exactly what this looks like in Stephen's story, but something about his face made the people that were looking at him think, that looks like a guy who's been living near the presence of God, who's sent on the mission of God with a message from God. And look, that's how Stephen sees himself too. I love this. Look at chapter seven, verse one. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges of blasphemy true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. Okay, we won't go on to read it all, but Stephen goes on to deliver the longest sermon in the whole book of Acts. And I love this. Here's what he does. Remember, Stephen's been following Jesus probably for about a year. He may have been Jewish for longer than that, but he goes back to the most famous stories. The stories that you learn first when you grow up in church, go to Sunday school, or when you very first start going to church. He talks about the story of Abraham and Isaac and Joseph and Moses and David and Solomon and Jesus. But for Stephen, they're not just stories that you tell a kid. They're pieces of a story that we're all a part of. And Stephen goes, hey, the settings are different. The nuances are different. But the storylines are always the same. In all of those stories, God raises up an ordinary person in a surprising place. He promises to be with them. And he launches them to offer hope and blessing and life to the world where he sends them. The world where he sends them opposes them. Or the circumstances oppress them. And just when it looks like the end of hope we discover it's only the beginning. Stephen says, that's Abraham's story. That's Isaac's story. It's Joseph's story and Moses' story. It's Jesus' story, right? From a manger in Bethlehem, offering life to the world, hung on a cross, the lights go out, we think it's all over, (laughs) but we're witnesses of resurrection. His death was only the beginning of life. See, that's the second place Stephen turns on the worst day possible. Looks back. Look back. He's got his mind on the past, even as he navigates the present. Why? Well, because it becomes clear to Stephen, those aren't just the stories of history. It sure looks like it's about to be his story. You see what he's doing? He's applying resurrection 
to his real-time moment on his worst possible day. He realizes our individual stories are a little like Hallmark movies, all written by the hand of the same God. Okay, you, you familiar with Hallmark movies? They're all the same story. The scenery changes, the specifics change, but they're all the same storyline, which is why some of you love them, right? They're predictable. They're consistent. And we know they're going to resolve at the end, even if we can't figure out the sub- subtleties of how that's going to happen right now. We know it's going to be okay. So we can still relax even in the climax, when it seems like all's lost. Gosh, this is so important for us today. See, as Stephen looks at the world that's getting scarier for him by the moment, a world where he feels like he has no voice, and he probably doesn't. He has no power, no control, no ability to influence the outcome. He's not afraid. Not because he's in control of the moment and all of the potential outcomes and scenarios. He's not. Not because there's nothing to fear. They're picking up rocks to drop on his head. Okay, he has the face of a man on a mission who has been sent with a message from God because he's looked back at the stories and realizes, I do not need things to go well around me to know things are well with me because God is present with me. And I've seen stories like this before. And I know how God writes stories. See, some of you need that reminder this morning. God is present and active in your present drama right this second. And maybe like Abraham, you don't know where God's sending you or how you're going to thrive when you get there. Maybe like Joseph, you've been rejected by those who were supposed to love you and support you and protect you. Maybe like Moses, you feel like all of your best efforts have been total failures. Maybe like Stephen, you feel like this present trial will crush you. And it may. But you know where those stories always go in the stories that God writes. So you can stare down your circumstance with the intense face of a courageous messenger who lives in the presence of God because that same God is present with you and he'll have the final word in your story. Even, especially when it looks like all hope is lost. And that's where Stephen's story goes. Skip down to Acts chapter seven, beginning in verse 54. Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious. They gnashed their teeth at him. Imagine this scene. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, and he saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, look, he said, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoned in him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he'd said this, he fell asleep. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Where did Stephen learn that? Don't miss that. The resurrection story is so central in Stephen's life that as he's facing his worst possible moment, he's still showing and telling who Jesus is and what he's like. That's the power of centrifugal faith. Luke tells us where Stephen was looking in these final moments. If you're taking notes, you want the third point, right? Look up. Look up. He has his eyes on Jesus. He's not afraid, not again, because he has it under control, not because the danger isn't real. He lives fear-free because he gets a stability and a sense of security vertically and nowhere else. Look, Christians, 
didn't change the world because they were just nicer than everybody else. They didn't change the world because they were just more moral than everybody else or had better rules for society than everybody else. The message of Jesus went to the world because Jesus' followers were so convinced of life, they were even willing to accept death. Look, I don't know what it looks like where you live today. Probably, depending on where you are as you're hearing this message, you're not going to be dragged into court and stoned for your faith in Jesus today. And in some ways, that's the point of showing Stephen's story first. Like there's no reason for us not to live like this. Stephen's story is sort of the worst case scenario for the worst day of your life, isn't it? In some ways, Luke is inviting us to look at Stephen as Stephen declares with his dying breath, even in this, Jesus is worth it. So that you can realize wherever he's sending you, whatever he's calling you to, however this day finds you, Jesus is worth it today too. Even if it doesn't seem like it or feel like it immediately. Hey, let me close with this. You notice it seems like right here, Stephen lives every preacher's worst nightmare. I mean, he preaches a passionate sermon. And as far as we know, not a single person who heard him says, hey, yeah, Jesus is worth it. You know, as far as we know, nobody trusts Christ. Nobody receives life. Nobody responds positively. They cover their ears and yell at the top of their lungs, reject him and his message, and they kill him. So I know you don't know what it's like to have my job. I'll just tell you, that's a bad preacher day. I don't know what a bad day following Jesus looks like where he's launching you, but I can show you the coolest thing that you may have missed in this passage that you have to see. Look back at verse 55. Chapter 7, verse 55, Luke says, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus, look at this word, standing at the right hand of God. Did you notice that the first time through? Some of you super attentive Bible scholars may have, but the rest of us ran right by it. You realize in the New Testament, all of the other places that talk about Jesus at the right hand of God talk about him sitting at the right hand of God. And the book of Hebrews tells us why. It's because the priest would work and work and work to offer sacrifices until finally he was done. And only when he was done could he sit down. And over and over, the New Testament wants to make sure that you know that Jesus offered the only sacrifice God requires to be satisfied on your behalf. Jesus doesn't have to keep sacrificing for you over and over and over and over, and neither do you. How do we know? Because Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. He finished his work. There's only one place in the New Testament where Jesus is at the right hand of God that he's not sitting down, and it's here. And scholars offer two possible reasons. I think they're both right, and they both give me chills. The first is that Jesus is rising up as Stephen's advocate. The world around Stephen mocked him and ignored him and rejected him and victimized him and prosecuted him in their kangaroo court for the crime of offering them life with a capital L. And as Stephen left this world, his savior stood up to say before God and judge the one who saw it all, the defense would like to have a few words now. (laughs) Gosh, that's awesome to think about. The other explanation is awesome too. It's that Jesus is watching these events unfold in real time because he is. He died on a cross and rose from the dead and commissioned his followers to never get over it, to live in the centrifugal force of resurrection and the present power of God to take life to the world wherever they're launched. And Jesus remains in charge of it all. None of it catches him by surprise. And even still, from his seat at the right hand of the Father, he watches as an ordinary guy named Stephen gets caught up in life and expresses it wherever he goes, trusting the spirit for wisdom in every moment, 
looking around and back and up, even in his darkest moment. And as Stephen finishes his race, Jesus himself can't stay in his seat, but jumps to his feet to cheer. And that's what I'm talking about, Stephen. You can't possibly know how I'm going to use this, but I'm not going to waste your pain and your story's not over, even though it seems like it is. It has a better ending than you could possibly imagine from here. See, that guy over there overseeing this whole thing, the guy with all the jackets at his feet while he watches, Stephen, he's watching, he's listening, and your story is going to be a big part of his story. And you can't even see it from here. Just when you thought that the story of your hope was going to end in your death, I'm going to show you. It's only the beginning. But Stephen, you were amazing right there. And I can't stay in my chair. I got to stand up and cheer. Oh, to live a life like that. Would you bow your head with me? Hey, if this morning the message of Jesus resonated with you like it never has before, the greatest news you're going to hear today is that you have a living Savior ready to stand before God as your advocate. He took all of the bad things that you've ever done and all of the good things you've never done and he paid your penalty for missing the mark so that you could have forgiveness and hope and life and purpose as a gift that he's already paid for. And if you've never received that gift, or if you're not sure right now where you sit, you can tell him you want to receive it. That you're trusting he paid for your life with his death, and he will give you forgiveness and life as a gift. And the moment you trust him, Jesus says, you step into life that's really life. His presence with you and his purpose for you and power available to you to change and to love and to really live like you've never lived before. Lord, for the person who just trusted you, Would you give them the courage to tell someone, the courage of Stephen? Maybe starting with someone who is in the room with them today or someone on the other side of a phone on a connection card at doxologychurch.info. Lord, would you give them the courage to tell someone? And for all of us, Lord, would you let us be the kinds of witnesses who look at you and look around to serve and never forget what we get the chance to be a part of, even on our worst imaginable days. Would you lead us to live toward life? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Doxology Bible Church podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes. If you're ever in the Fort Worth area, we'd love to worship with you in person at one of our services. For more information on service times and location, visit doxology.church. Thanks for listening to the Doxology Bible Church podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes. If you're ever in the Fort Worth area, we'd love to worship with you in person at one of our services. For more information on service times and location, visit doxology.church.